0: Let me pray for us before we get started. I feel like I need to sanctify the last couple of minutes. Um, (laughs) Father, thank you for drawing us together um, as your people uh, by your grace, for your glory, and for our good. And we ask that you do in the next 45 minutes that we have together this morning what only you can do. As we open up your word, I just ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, make your word that is living and active and more powerful than anything imaginable. Do what you said it will do. May it divide our thoughts and intentions. May it separate our sinful motivations from the motivations that come from knowing you and enjoying your grace. May you reveal to us by your word where we need to more fully and more increasingly trust in who you are and what you have done for us. We ask that you would do that, Father, by your spirit. or ultimately, that we would be conformed to the image of your son, And that you would receive glory. That your name would receive honor. That you would receive fame from the way that your people live their lives in the place where you have sent them. That's what we want. We want Redemption Hill to be a place that reflects your glory. So we ask this morning that you do what only you can do. Amen. Amen. To cultivate healthy churches, let me go ahead and turn a timer on for all of you who didn't bring a lunch. Um, To cultivate healthy churches made up of healthy Christians that reflect the character of God as he has revealed himself in his word, what we have seen so far in our short study of the book of Titus is that that church needs leaders that enjoy God's grace. To cultivate healthy churches made up of healthy Christians that reflect God's character as he's revealed himself in his word, the thing that that church needs more than an active kids ministry, more than a huge band, uh, more than a fancy building, more than the hottest location, what it needs are leaders that truly and deeply and increasingly enjoy God's grace. That was Paul's encouragement to his church planting protege Titus and his other church planting protege Timothy and the places that Paul had left them after they had done ministry in Crete and in Ephesus and in Asia Minor. Paul left these guys in this place and he said, men, this is what I need you to do. I need you to appoint leaders in your church that enjoy the grace of God deeply because where the leaders go the church will go. What the leaders trust, the church will ultimately trust in. What the leaders value, ultimately the church will value. So for a healthy church to be cultivated not only in the island of Crete centuries ago, but in Richmond, Virginia right here and right now in the 21st century, what is most important is not where we meet, not necessarily what we sing, not necessarily how we even organize and in what room in a building we do it in, It's that there are leaders that that God is cultivating in our midst by his Holy Spirit that deeply and truly and increasingly enjoy God's grace. That's what we started talking about last week. That's what we're going to continue talking about this week. So let me remind you of a couple of things that we said. Last week, we made some general statements throughout the New Testament about leadership in the local church. And the first thing we said, and we won't go through it all again, is that above and beyond everything, Jesus is the head of his church. I am not the head of this church. I am not the the end-all, be-all in this church. Jesus is the head of his church. And those that he calls and those that he cultivates and those who are appointed to lead local churches are simply those who are following Jesus and leading others to do the very same thing. Jesus is the head of his church. Secondly, we talked about the fact that because of what God has done for us in Jesus and the access that we have to God by grace There really is no distinction before God between those who God calls to lead his church and those who are part of God's church. All members of God's church are ministers and priests. All members of God's church have equal access to God because of what Jesus has done. I have no special mediating power between you and God. You can go boldly before the throne of God because of the grace of God that has come from Jesus Christ just as easily as I can. Because of that, there is no class distinction between what's often called clergy and what's often called laity. There's no distinction in access before God. All are called in Scripture to be ministers and priests. We talked about that last week. But God then calls, and God then cultivates in his local churches particular people to lead his people in particular ways. And we looked in the New Testament last week at how Scripture points out that God calls particular leaders called elders and another group of leaders called deacons to lead his people in particular ways. Elders are servant leaders who lead the church by serving them. They protect, they instruct, they correct, they feed, and they, and they shoot the wolves. We talked about that last week. We won't go into that. I wanted to go back and talk about that again because that was fun. But elders are, are men who God has called and who God is cultivating to protect and lead his people to shoot the wolves that seek to devour the souls of God's people, to lead his people to the places where he is leading them, to follow closely to Jesus, and to encourage and to equip and to instruct God's people to follow closely to Jesus. Elders are given that task. And last week we talked about what an elder is and what an elder does, and, and we look throughout the Bible, in particular in Titus, about how Paul unpacks to Titus what this guy looks like. But there's another office in the church that we're gonna talk briefly about this morning, uh, the office of deacons. And, And deacons are are leaders in God's church who lead God's church in serving. Elders serve God's church by leading it. Deacons lead in God's church by leading his people to serve. We're gonna talk about what that looks like and we're gonna look at it here in a minute. So God raises particular leaders in particular times to lead his people in particular ways. And we looked at one of them last week. We're gonna look at another of them this week. So if you've got your Bibles, we're gonna do a little off-roading from Titus when we get started this morning. If you've got your Bibles... Uh, open them up to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, the story of the development and the growth and the spread of of God's church. And this morning, I want to talk briefly about what a deacon is, what a deacon does, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how you spot these guys. And, And the reason we're doing it this way, and the reason I kind of stopped short a little bit last week when we talked about how you can spot an elder, as Paul talks about it in Titus and 1 Timothy is because I wanted you to see that after we understand what an elder does and what a deacon does, the way that you spot them is pretty similar. The traits that God is cultivating in these people that he's calling out to lead his church in particular ways, they're pretty similar. There's really only two main distinctions, and we'll talk about that when we get to these traits. So this morning, we want to see what a deacon is, what a deacon does, and I want to try to get through those relatively quickly, and I don't really do anything relatively quickly when it comes to preaching Uh, But I want to try to do that relatively quickly, and then I want to talk about how we spot the leaders that God is cultivating in His church, Uh, because what we hope to see, and what I hope for you to understand when you leave, is that ultimately all the traits, all the characteristics, you'll hear people talk about the qualifications of leadership, all of those things, they're really elsewhere in Scripture called of all of us. There's really no distinction or trait mentioned in the Scripture in Titus or 1 Timothy about an elder or a deacon that isn't then commanded upon all believers somewhere else in the New Testament. So we're really going to be talking to all of you. So before you tune me out, because we're in a second week of what it means to, to be a leader that enjoys grace, I want you to, to stay tuned because we're going to be talking about all of you. So Acts chapter six, if you've gotten there, let me go there and I want to read this to you um, and then we'll talk a little bit about where a deacon is and what a deacon does. Acts chapter six. It would have been good if I was already there before you, wouldn't it? All right, Acts chapter six, verse one. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, and the twelve are talking about the original twelve apostles who were serving at this time in God's church as the elders, as the leaders of the local church in Jerusalem. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Prominius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Well, how come nobody names their kids like that anymore? And these are the original seven men chosen to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. But we don't name our kids after these guys anymore. I just dawned on me, sorry. Um, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. First thing I want to clear up as we look at this briefly about what a deacon is what a deacon does before we talk about how we spot these guys. So I want you to understand what the word deacon actually means. Deacon, the, the word that we, we get that from, is used three different times in the first four verses of Acts chapter 6. And every time in the New Testament, when you come across the word that we tend to translate or talk about as a deacon, it's really, ta- it's really a word that, that talks about service. It's a word that, that literally means the service or the meeting of a physical need. It's It's serving. When it talks about taking care of or the distribution of food or to wait on tables or, or the apostles not neglecting the ministry of the word, even that ministry of the word is translated from the word we get deacon from, which is serving. So when we talk about deacons and what a deacon is and what a deacon does, ultimately at the heart of what a deacon is and what he, is, what he does, it's serving. It's a ministry of, of service. And it's not just an office It's not just a a leadership position that we tend to get in our minds, and it's not just particular things that they do that we need to get in our minds. What I want you to see when the Bible talks about serving one another and, and this person that God raises up in the church called a deacon is that what it's really trying to get after, what it's really trying to point to is a passion for serving and leading God's people to serve. That's what's really characteristic of a deacon and that's what the Bible is really getting after and Luke's getting after and writing the book of Acts. These are are people who are passionate. There's a passion that's being developed because of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of a believer as he's increasingly enjoying the grace of God that is becoming a passion to serve other people for the glory of God. And the picture that's gonna be painted in the New Testament and the picture that we'll, we'll try to put together kind of like Legos a little bit this morning is that Jesus is the head of his church And elders are servant leaders in his church who are leading and protecting and feeding and instructing and correcting the members of his church. And deacons are servant leaders in his church who lead God's people in serving and meeting the needs of one another. That's the picture of a local church. That's the picture of a healthy leadership in a local church that's learning to increasingly enjoy God's grace. So what does it actually look like for these guys to do these things? And what does a deacon actually do? We don't really get a lot of specific information in the Bible about that. There's really no job description anywhere in the New Testament for a deacon. You can't really turn to a particular passage and lay it out there in nice form as go find deacons, go appoint deacons. Here's who they are and here's what they need to do in the life of your local church. What we get is, our our scripture is a bit like this in Acts chapter six and we can see what was going on that caused the need for God to call the leaders to appoint these people and we can get a picture of who they are and what they do and why we would need them. You see, in this time in Jerusalem, there was some conflict that was occurring in the church that was coming because of change and growth. The gospel was going forward in Jerusalem. People were getting saved. Disciples were being added daily to the church and whenever there's change, Whenever there's growth, there's always going to be tension. Change and growth always produces tension. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the church or anything else. It always produces tension. And so here in Jerusalem, the gospel's going forward and people are being added and something's beginning to happen. All of a sudden, the, the Hellenistic widows, those of, of Gentile background, the, the Hellenist believers are looking around going, wait a minute, we've got this distribution of food because the Bible calls all believers in the Old Testament, isn't a New Testament thing, to take care of the widow?" and the orphan. And we've prioritized our own resources and our own stuff and our own food so that we would have what we needed to take care of those who were amongst us in our families and in our congregation that were widows, that were poor, that couldn't meet the needs that they had. We were going to care for them. But wait a minute. My mom, wait wait, wait a minute. My aunt, wait a minute. Hold on. All the people who look like me aren't getting taken care of. There's a little ethnocentrism growing in the church in Jerusalem. And the Hebrew believers are making sure that all the resources are are gathered together and that all the Hebrew women, all the Hebrew widows are getting fed first. And the Hellenist widows, the Gentile widows, weren't being taken care of. And so the believers came together and said, this isn't right. People have been added, people from different backgrounds, people from different cultures, people from different ethnicities, people of different needs and places and stations in life are growing because of the gospel being brought into the church. And a need has arisen. We've got to figure out a more accurate, helpful, and intentional way to take care of the needs that God has called us in Scripture to meet. And the first thing you see about deacons is that deacons arise in Scripture and are appointed in churches to meet particular needs that arise in the life of that church in the time and place that God has put that church. Deacons arise to meet a particular need according to the Word of God. So a need arises, and there are people that God has put in His church Uniquely suited, called, and passionate to serve God's people that you can appoint to meet those needs. Deacons arise to help meet different needs as they arise at different times, and they last in the church as long as the need lasts. Now, if you have church backgrounds, and all of you have different church backgrounds, and praise God for those of you that have no church background, uh, because you get to deal with the Bible, the rest of you, we have to unpack all kinds of things. If you have church backgrounds, you may have seen deacons do all kinds of things. You may have come from a church where a deacon sat as a particular trustee board that oversaw the senior pastor and dictated to him what he did, and the deacon seemed to control everything about the church instead of leading the people to serve in the church. It, there's no telling what you saw and what you think of when it comes to understanding a deacon. But biblically, deacons arise in the church and are appointed in the church to meet specific needs in the church as they arise so that the forward progress of the gospel can continue to go forward and not be hindered and to not distract the elders from doing the thing that God has called them to do. The elders have been appointed, as we talked about last week, to protect the church, to feed the church, to instruct the church, to equip God's people to do the work that God has called them to do to lead the church, to set a direction and a trajectory, and to make sure all the church does is continuing to get along the lines of where God is calling them to do as they follow Jesus and his intention for the church. And as needs arise, as people come in, as things grow, deacons arise and are appointed to make sure that the elders are not distracted from the things that they need to be doing, the calling that God has put on them. And deacons arise to meet particular needs at particular times to lead God's people in serving the church that's what a deacon tends to do. Deacons and elders, when functioning together in a healthy way in a local church, serve as the foundation for cultivating a very balanced and a very healthy church. See, oftentimes you can skew off one way in a church and you can be all about the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word as you should be, Because the word is central, as the gospel is foundational to who we are. That's so we talk about being gospel-centered in everything that we do. And you can be so robust about the preaching and the teaching of the word. Always settled and equipped for those things. Always on guard, protecting the right doctrine of the church, holding fast to the truth of the word while ignoring the needs. While ignoring the hurt. While ignoring the very clear commands of God in Scripture, not only New Testament and Old Testament, to take care of those who are in need. You can become so centered on this one thing that you fail to recognize the rest of how that plays out in the rest of your life. On the other hand, you can find yourself in churches that are so bent on meeting needs, so bent on observing and finding needs, so bent on pulling everything about what they do to to point out need and to pour people into meeting need, that the reality of the gospel and the purity of the gospel and the foundation of the truths of scripture no longer serve for their rightful place in the church. And you can find yourself unbalanced one way or the other, but when there's a healthy growth and increasing number of elders and pastors who are enjoying grace in God's church and learning to lead and feed and protect God's people. And there's a healthy number of deacons who are arising in God's church to meet the needs as they arise. And as long as they last, what you find is a balanced church that's able to move forward in the call that God has given that church to reflect his glory in the place where he's put them. So deacons meet needs according to the word as they arise, and they support the ministry of the word that the elders are called to do in the life of God's people. Deacons are massively important. They're massively important. They lead people to meet need, and they serve the ministry of the word by freeing the elders up to do what they do. It's not like Congress. There's not an aisle that's split down the middle between elders in the church and deacons in the church, and they argue across the aisle about what we're going to do and who gets to do what and what we should do and what we should be about and how we should do this and how we should do that. That's not how it looks. It's not how it should look. That may be how it looks where you came from, that's not how the Bible portrays the relationship between elders and deacons and members of God's church. Deacons arise to meet needs as they arise in particular local congregations, and they support the ministry of the word by freeing the elders up to give their, their lives, their heart, their focus, their attention to the very thing that God has called them and appointed them to do in the life of the local church. And There's something else I don't want you to miss in, in Acts chapter 6 as it pertains to what deacons do who they are and and what this looks like. And I want you to clearly understand that when it came in Acts chapter 6, the distribution of the food, when they had to figure out what was going to happen, I don't want you to get the idea that the only people who were ever serving food, who were ever passing out meals, who were ever giving away the resources that had been collected were deacons. The seven that were set apart full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom were not the only ones who were handing out food to the widows as they came to the church. Deacons not only arise to meet particular needs, they not only arise to support the ministry of the word, to free the elders up to do what they do, but deacons lead God's people to meet needs. Deacons, deacons are some of the most brilliant and gifted people I've ever come around. When you find somebody who's really operating this way, who's really beginning to increasingly enjoy the grace of God in such a way they see the forward movement of God in his people and they see needs beginning to arise or, or you bring to them a need that's arising in the church, a, a potential source of conflict and, and friction or, or a way that we need to readjust how we're doing things to do what God has called us to do. And they find themselves in this position and they don't just say, okay, I'll go do this. I will now go and labor in this way for God's glory. No, deacons, they come up with the most strategic and brilliant structures And ways to engage God's people to help serve God's people. Deacons build the processes and the structures to help the church meet the needs that have arisen, and deacons lead God's people in serving to meet those needs. They're amazing. Deacons lead God's people in serving God's people for God's glory. So, they arise because of a need, they're there as long as the need lasts. They're there to support the ministry of the word so the elders can do what the elders are called to do. So they're not distracted by everything that's going on, but at the same time, they're not just doing all this grunt work and getting frustrated and bitter. They're actually engaging God's people to join them in the process of serving God's people to meet the needs that have arisen in the local church according to the word of God. Deacons are unbelievably important in the life of a local church. Where do you see it happen around here? Well, let me tell you, Quickly, we have not officially appointed deacons in this church. And we'll see in just a minute why. One of the, the traits and one of the, the qualifications, if you like to use that word, of deacons, as we'll see in First Timothy, is that they've got to be tested. You've got to actually see their life, observe their life, observe their service. And so we've only been around for two years. And so as needs have arisen, we're beginning to see people arise to meet those needs. But let me just show you a place where this is already happening so that you can be thankful. I know that all of you, and a pretty good number of everybody who's a regular tender, is here this morning, even though it's summer. And I know that all of you have a burning passion and desire every week when you show up to go down the hallway first thing and figure out how you can serve our kids and teach them the gospel, care for them, equip them, make sure they're safe, and make sure they're served. Now imagine if all 220 of you showed up on Sunday morning, and rush down the hallway to where we have the kids' classes, and all of you managed to find a way to get into one of the rooms so that you could find a kid to, to teach and to squeeze and to love and to serve, and nobody was there to point you in any direction. Nobody was there to manage your passion and the chaos that ensues because of your passion. Imagine if we didn't have the leaders that we have right now who organize particular people to serve at particular times, who make sure that there are particular things being taught in particular rooms, to make sure that there's space provided for each particular age so we don't have seven-year-olds beating up on one-year-olds and using them as footballs and, and all kinds of things. Imagine if we didn't have people who saw a need and arose as a need came and worked with the elders to figure out an accurate solution to not only meet the need, but to continue to meet the need as the need continues to grow, and then to lead the rest of you in serving to meet that need. Imagine what would happen if we didn't have people who did that. But we do. So all of your passion can be contained. And so when Heather makes the next announcement about those who are are ready to come and help and teach and serve and, and nurture our kids, all of you can say, I will do it. I will serve two weeks every 10 to make sure our kids are cared for and served. And they'll put you in the right place and they'll put you at the right time and you can come and it won't be a mad rush every single week for you to go and serve the kids. It's a wonderful thing. But then, because of that, Because of that service, because of that wisdom, and because of that structure that's being placed, the rest of you, when it's not your weeks, you get to come in here, and you get to sing, you get to celebrate, you get to meet one another, love one another, share your life with one another, and you get to sit and listen to the word of God and pray that God would transform your heart as the word was read and the word was preached, and as people are here, and they hear the gospel go forward, and Jesus collides with their soul, and their soul is transformed, and they get saved... That was made possible because somebody was making it possible for our kids to be taken care of. And that person wasn't being distracted by a a two-and-a-half-year-old who is still learning how to sit still. And I preach for a very long time. And I guarantee you if all of our two-and-a-half-year-olds were in here, no matter how much you want family ministry, you would be totally distracted and frustrated after a period of time by a whole room full of two-and-a-half-year-olds who can't sit still. But because people have risen to see a need, serving and leading the church to meet that need, people get to sit here. They get to sing and they get to hear the gospel. They get to deal with Jesus without that level of distraction. They get to see their soul transformed and meet the people that God has brought them to to help encourage them along their way because we have people who are doing this. That's what deacons do. They meet needs as they arise in the church. They support the ministry of the word that God has appointed the elders to do. And they lead God's people in serving to meet those needs as long as we need them. That will be a need we probably will have for a long time. We'll probably have a need for people to teach and serve and love our kids for a long time. I don't see that one changing. But it happens all over the place on Sunday morning. We started this church two years ago. We were meeting at Grace Covenant Church on Monument Avenue in their little chapel. And we met on Sunday afternoons and evenings. So Sunday morning, I was studying, writing a sermon. My wife and I were gathering children's materials, finding workers, getting to the building opening the building, copying and printing bulletins, getting in, making communion, getting communion there, making sure there was a place where people could give, making sure the building was safe, making sure the workers got there. We're doing everything. We moved in here to Holton. Nothing changed. night before we had our first service, my wife and I were at Target, and we had four baskets going like this. Jude was pushing a basket, I was pushing a basket, had a basket in front of me, Aaron had a basket, and we had just been allowed to come into Holton the day before, and we didn't know what we needed. So we were at Target late Saturday night, grabbing all this stuff, thinking that, you know, this will work, and God's good providence. A neighbor was in Target and asked why we were buying so much stuff, and we told him he's at church now. Um, but it, we were there getting everything. We'd come in, we'd make the bulletins, we'd get in, we'd set up the seats in the other room. We'd move the tables out of the way, we'd set up the PowerPoint. I would run the PowerPoint while the people were singing. I'd get up, run up front, make the announcements. They'd stop singing. We'd go sit back down. I'd run back to the back and change the PowerPoint to the sermon, run back up front to preach the sermon, to run back to the back during reflection so I could run the PowerPoint during the music while somebody was singing. And we went to Panera and bought coffee and bagels and got all that here and got all that set up. We were doing everything. But as people began to feel like this was the place that God was drawing them, they would begin to see needs. And people began to rise up and say, there's a particular need that was rising that I could no longer fulfill. I couldn't do it. I just, I just couldn't. I was running out of time to do what God had called me to do, which is chiefly this on a Sunday morning. And people began to rise and they began to serve the needs as they were met. And God began to surface elders that we could appoint. Men who were enjoying... The grace of God deeply and who could join in the teaching and leading, the preaching, the protecting of God's people and people who were rising up to meet needs as they arose and to serve those needs and to participate in the ministry of the word and to lead God's people in meeting the needs. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. Deacons and elders together functioning in the way that God has designed in his church for his glory are an absolutely beautiful thing that helped cultivate a healthy and a balanced church. So, how do we figure out who those people are? How do we find these leaders? How do we find elders who can lead God's people, protect God's people, serve God's people, and deacons who can lead others to serve as as needs arise? I'll tell you one thing. There will be a massive temptation in the church. There will be a temptation that's on me, It'll be a temptation that's on Chris, on Ray. It'll be a temptation that's on you as you begin to see needs arise and as we begin to talk about leadership and and God is raising other people in this church to be elders and to be deacons. The temptation will be who can fulfill the need and do the job the best? Who is the most competent at meeting that need as it's arisen? Who's the smartest? Who's the most experienced? Who can come in here and get it done the most efficiently? The temptation will always be the same promote and appoint competence and not character the funny thing is the bible totally flips that totally flips it it's the greatest temptation that will ever happen in the life of the church As the church begins to grow and needs begin to develop and and people begin to rise up and you begin to see yourself needing to meet needs and lead people and protect things and and do the things that leadership has to do in the life of a church the temptation will be who is the best suited who is the most competent Not whose character is most reflective of that which is called to be a servant leader in God's church. God totally flips it. He always appoints character over competence. And the emphasis that we'll we'll see in scripture is not on what, as an elder or a deacon, you must do. The emphasis in scripture is never on what an elder or a deacon must do, but always on who they're to be. Who are these people to be? Who are they? What are they made of? That's why above and and beyond, and we've titled this the way we have, above and beyond what an elder does and what a deacon does, the chief thing that they do is related to who they are. They've got to be people who deeply enjoy grace. They've got to be a people who deeply, deeply enjoy grace. So there are two main places in scripture that give us a picture, kind of a diagnostic of of what an elder and what a deacon looks like. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. We started with it last week. I pulled an end around in the middle of the sermon and decided we would put it all together this week with deacons and elders. In Titus chapter one, 1 Timothy chapter three, we see two interesting lists that the apostle Paul gives his two protégés about what to look for when they're appointing elders and deacons and when they're trying to figure out who these people are that God is actually at work in in the life of their local church. Not people they have to go out and get Not programs you have to develop to make them, but people in whom the Holy Spirit is already at work. How do you figure out who these people are? And what I'm going to do, I'm going to read them. So I want you to hear them, and I want you to hear how spectacularly similar they are. I mean, really, there's very little difference in 1 Timothy and in Titus, both written by the Apostle Paul to his protégés about these particular leadership roles in the church. They're so similar for elders and deacons. There's two main exceptions, and we'll get to it after we read it, but I I want you to listen. So, I'm going to read, we're going to start in Titus, and then I'm going to flip over to 1 Timothy. And if you're in Titus chapter 1, all you'll have to do to get to Timothy is go left, probably about seven pages, eight pages. So, Titus chapter 1, this is what he says. We'll start in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders. Those are the leaders who, who serve God's church by leading it. Put elders in every town as I directed you. And here, here's a list, here's a, here's a picture. It's not comprehensive, not exhaustive. It's just a diagnostic of some traits we're after. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Now, go left, First Timothy. Paul's writing here in Titus to his buddy Titus at a new church that's forming in Crete. We talked about that in week one. Now in 1 Timothy, Paul's writing to his protege Timothy, who's actually pastor in a church in Ephesus that he's been at for probably 20 years. So while Titus is looking at men in a new church saying, who am I looking to appoint to lead God's church? Paul's telling Timothy in the midst of conflict in the church of Ephesus, which has been around for 20 years, these are the guys that need to be leading my church. And if anybody leading my church right now doesn't meet these qualifications or have these traits, he's no longer qualified to lead my church. So these are traits that not only qualify you to lead, they're traits that if absent disqualify you to lead if you're already leading. to hear those two this way. But listen to how similar they are. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, same word as elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer or an elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church?" He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now listen to his qualifications or traits of deacons and see how similar these are. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Here are a lot of similarities here. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Those are the two main places where we get the picture, the diagnostic of what it looks like to be a leader in God's church and who we're actually looking for. And what I want to do in the last bit of time that we've got left, and I will look to see what that is, is we are going to briefly define, unpack these a little bit, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to wrestle with them. I want you to hear them and wrestle with them in relation to your heart, your soul, and your life. I want you to hear these qualifications, and I want you to ask yourself, where am I in this? I want you to ask God and ask the Holy Spirit to to show you where you are in this and where you're strong and where you're weak and where adjustment needs to be made and just how you stand up to this list of traits that Paul's listed in these two books. Because what you'll see is, and D.A. Carson said this and I thought it was brilliant. He said, the most remarkable thing about the list of traits of the leaders in God's church is just how unremarkable it is. I mean, the most remarkable thing about the characteristics of leaders in God's church it's just how unremarkable the list is. I mean, no dragons to kill, no mountains to climb, no dead to raise, no miracles to be documented. No, it's nothing about what they do. It's, it's pretty unremarkable, but it's about who they are. And everything in these lists can be said of believers somewhere else in the New Testament. So I want you to listen, and I want you to wrestle. We're gonna unpack these things, and I want you just to allow God to deal with you in a few minutes we got left, and as we leave, and, and see where you are in some of this stuff. So the first thing that we'll, that we'll say is that a leader in God's church, a leader who is enjoying grace deeply, we talked about it last week, has got to be above reproach. That's the blanket that covers all these things. Your life before others has got to be one that can't be held charged and substantiated of any kind of moral impropriety or failure. You've got to be found blameless, that's what that word is, above reproach. And above reproach in what? In all of your life? Well, that's what the rest of the list is going to unpack. So we started last week, and you said, you've got to be above reproach in your relationships, particularly your relationships at home. And so we asked last week, first of all, are you above reproach? Do you know of anything in your life right now where stood before a jury of your peers, your life, your soul, your conduct, would find you Disqualified. Are you above reproach? But more importantly, are you above reproach in your home? And last week, we spent some time talking about what it meant in that, in 1 Timothy and in Titus, when it talked about the relationships a, a leader in God's church was to have with his wife. And we talked about the fact that you can actually translate what Titus is talking about there as a one-woman man. And we spent some time unpacking last week what it meant to be a one-woman man, how important that was in the life of the church, and how unbelievably destructive It is in the body of a church and in the life of a believer when that is not true of them. So we're not going to unpack all that again for time. That's a sermon we could probably preach every other week. And it would probably do somebody good. The second thing that he says, are you above reproach in your home, relationship with your wife? This is their purity there. Is she the only one that's got your eyes? She's the only one that's got your hands. Are you a one-woman man? But then, are you above reproach with your kids? Are you, are you above reproach in your relationship with your kids? Titus says, uh, a man whose children, this is him. He needs to be a man whose children believe, and they're not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Really, what he's getting after here, and we're going to try to get after the essence without kind of digging into all the details, what he's saying is, well, here's what you're looking for. You're looking for a guy, characteristically, who's got the traits of being a guy who's a good pastor of his home. Are you a good pastor of your home? You'll hear it talked about a lot these days, and guys using the phrase a lot, but are you a pastor dad? Are you a pastor dad? Because at root, all of you in here who are husbands and fathers, all of you in here are bivocational pastors. I don't know if you know that, myself included. All of you are commanded and are under this command of scripture to manage and lead your family well, to nurture And train your children in the admonition of the Lord to know how Jesus transforms every aspect of their life and to find their hearts alive to the realities of who Jesus is. You can't make them do that. Only God can do that, but you're to pastor them in that. So all of you are pastors. Every man in here who has a child is a pastor. You're a bivocational pastor. You go and support your family and care for your family in some sort of vocation that God has put you in, but it does not relieve you of your role as a pastor at home. I'm a bivocational pastor. I take care of my family by being a a pastor and an elder in this church, doing what elders do in this church. But at home, I'm still the pastor, first and foremost, of my family. So, what you're looking for is a guy who is pastoring his family well. Does he lead his children well in knowing who Jesus is and, and in nurturing and cultivating their soul to love him? Do they follow him? Does his wife follow him? Does he have a direction for his home? Does he know where he wants to go? Does he know where God is calling them to go? Does he know who God is calling them to be? Does he lead his home in this? Is he a good pastor? Are you a good pastor to your kids? There's a lot can be said about what Titus is is pointing at here, but I want you to hear this because I know people butcher this all the time. Titus is not disqualifying you in here because one of your children has a bad day. Some of you have a lot of kids. Lots of you have lots of kids. If one of your kids has a bad day on Sunday, or out at lunch, has a rough week, is going through a difficult time in their life, you're not DQ'd. He's not disqualifying people whose four-year-olds and five-year-olds and 10-year-olds are having a hard time controlling themselves at times. He's looking at a man who's consistently and intentionally taking the initiative to pastor his family? Is there intentionality on your part to pastor them well? We're not DQing you because one of your seven, eight, nine, ten kids is having a hard time. That's not the heart of what Titus is getting after. But it's are you intentionally leading them? Are you pastoring them? Do you have the burden and sense the responsibility to do that? And are you taking the initiative to do that? That's what he's talking about. That's what he's looking for there's something in First Timothy, and that's why I want to bring this list in, that, that he said, Paul says to Timothy, that I found remarkably staggering this week. And I don't know that I had actually ever really comprehended it the way that I comprehended it this week. And it, it produced some of the most fruitful discussion in my home uh, related to our kids and related to how we love them that I think we've had in a long time. And, and I want you to hear what Paul tells Timothy. The First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, of these leaders He's got to manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Verse five, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? The idea being, if you can't pastor your own wife and kids, why in the world would God give you his bride? Why in the world? I mean, what makes you think that if you can't pastor your wife, why would he give you his? That's kind of what he's getting after. But here's something in particular that it, it was really getting me. He said, This man has got to manage his own house. He's got to lead his house. He's got to direct his house. He's got to have a trajectory forward for his family, where they're going, what he wants them to be. Make sure they're going in the right direction. But he gains credibility, and this is what got me. You've got to lead your family. Where do you get the credibility from to actually lead your family? I mean, where does the respect and the credibility come from for your wife and your kids to actually follow you? Verse five, he says he's got to manage his own family. If he doesn't, how can he care for God's church? Your capacity to lead your family, manage your home, pastor your family, your credibility and your authority comes from your capacity and the way in which you care for them. And what hit me is that word care, how does he care for God's church, is only used one other time in the New Testament, only one other time in the Bible, and it's used in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's used in the parable of the Good Samaritan to display how that Samaritan took care of that man who had been beaten and mugged on the side of the road. This is how he cared for him. And what did his care for that man look like? It cost him his priorities. That Samaritan was on on his way somewhere. He had a plan, he had a schedule, he was going somewhere. And he came across this man, and his schedule went out the window because he saw the need that was going on in the life of this man. His priorities didn't matter anymore. It cost him his money. He paid for that man to be taken care of, to have a place to stay. It cost him his time, it cost him his security and safety. You were going on the most dangerous road in the area, down to Jericho at the time, a place known historically for being one of the most dangerous areas, leaving Jerusalem. Robbers and bandits all over the road. This man picks up a man who's been beaten by somebody. Obviously, somebody's probably paying attention, and now he's associated with this man. The repercussions that could have come on him for doing what he did were unbelievable. It could have cost him his life, but it didn't matter. His care for this man cost him his life priorities, his own time, his own needs, his own wants, his own money, his own comfort, his own security. Listen, does that characterize the way you care for your kids? Does it characterize the way you care for your family? Does your care for your kids display a willingness to put aside your want, your priority, your need, your time, your intention, your money, your resource for their well-being? Does it? Paul says something really interesting to, interesting to Timothy here. He said, not only is this to be the way that this man is to care for his family, this is where his credibility to actually lead them comes from in the way that he cares for them. So does he care for them this way, but then listen to this caveat. We, we preach this all wrong sometimes, I think. Are his children obedient, and do they respect him? We preach those two different things. Do you have obedient kids, and do your kids respect you? And that's not what Paul said. He said, do they obey out of respect? Is their obedience a respectful obedience? Any fool can get anybody to fear them enough to obey them. Don't don't miss this. Any fool can get anybody to fear them and obey them. It does not take a real man to get a kid to fear him into obedience. That is not parenting. That is not pastoring. That is not loving your kids. Anybody can get anyone to fear them. Paul said to Timothy, you're looking for a guy who gets his kids to obey him because they respect him. And where does that respect come from? It comes from the way that he's cared for them. It comes from the way that he's loved them. It's come from the way he's been intentionally, consistently loving and nurturing to them, not lording it over them, not bullying them, not manipulating them, not beating them into submission, not fearing them into obedience. One of the most ruthless dictators of all time, Mao Tung, said this. He said, do you don't want to know where, where power comes from? He said, power comes from the barrel of a gun. He said, but do you want to know what I'm most scared of? He said, I'm most scared of what happens when you take the gun away. Any fool can get anybody to obey him out of fear. Paul says, you're looking for a man. You're looking for a man whose kids obey him, not because he has power, not because he can lord it over them, but because they respect him. And a guy who's gotten his kids to obey him out of fear and out of power, just wait till the kid gets old enough to take the gun away. Just wait. Wait till you see what that obedience looks like. Wait till it starts with the roll of the eyes, the back talk, the disregard. Wait till you see what happens when that child gets old enough to get away from that power. This is so important, not only in your life as a a husband or as a father, it's, it's unbelievably important in the life of the church when you're talking about who leads the church because a man who will lead his family in a way that he lords it over them and commands their Their obedience out of fear and out of power will do the very same thing in a church. The first time a disagreement comes, the first time a decision needs to be made, the first time something comes up on the table that he has a particular opinion about, wait till you see what comes out. Wait till you see what comes out. If he can't love and care for his wife and his kids in this way, in this manner, God forbid put him in charge of the church. You're looking for a man who can manage his family, lead his family, do everything in his house? No, lead his family. Have a trajectory that they're going on towards what God is cultivating in that home, setting the standards in that home, the values in that home, nurturing the personalities in that home, not lording that home over anybody else's home, but leading his family that God has given them, caring for them in a way that his priorities, his purposes, his passions go out the window. They go out the window because they're not what's most important. I love it. Ed Welch, one of my favorite writers, said, self-serving passions don't need to be met. They need to be crucified. That's what's happening in the life of this man. They're being crucified. Because his care, his attention, his focus, his priority is no longer on himself. A leader's got to serve his kids, love his kids, serve his wife, love his family, lead his family. When you find that guy, I'll tell you this much because we're going to run out of time. When you find that guy, I'll tell you where you won't find him. You won't find him in every spare moment that he's got out on the golf course. You won't find him in every spare night that he's got during the week out on mandates, out demanding his time with all the boys. He doesn't have time for it. I don't know where the time comes from. He doesn't have time for it. If he's actively loving and serving his wife and his kids, and if he's in here, then he's got a lot of loving and serving to do, especially when your kids start racking up in the three, four, five, six, and sevens. That's a lot of time and a lot of kids to individually love and serve. When he's loving and serving his wife and he's loving and serving his kids, when he's doing his job with excellence that he might be able to take care of his family and his heart's being bent towards leading God's people Seeing that the gospel is cultivated in the hearts of other people, that spiritual good is going on in the lives of other people, that he's concerned for the protection and the firm grasp of the gospel and the life of the church, you can do hobbies in eternity. You won't have time for it. You won't find that guy out there doing those things. He doesn't have time. It's not his priority. So he's got to be a guy who's above reproach, and he's got to be a guy who's above reproach in his relationships, in particular with his wife and, and with his kids. And <clears throat> Let me say this, because I'm just on a roll, I think. Does this make sense to anybody? I've seen this, and I pray almost daily that it will never be said of me or of anyone in this place or of anyone that I know or anyone of God's church. It's so burdensome. But looking for this man and seeing these men arise, know this, diagnose yourself with this. Good ministry, active ministry, busy ministry, fruitful ministry should never, ever, ever be used to cover up a bad marriage or a bad home, ever. And it is so easy to do in the church. You can get so busy doing ministry, so consumed doing ministry, so consumed seeing fruit come in the lives of other people that it actually becomes a cover for a marriage that's lost passion a marriage that's lost care, a marriage that's lost intentionality, kids that you've disconnected from, and you can actually even use your kids to do ministry, but in such a way as to avoid ever actually pastoring them and leading them. Good ministry is never, ever, ever to be used as a cover for a bad marriage and a bad home. Ever. You've got to think about that. You've got to look at where you are in that. You've got to diagnose your own home. You've got to diagnose your own soul. You've got to diagnose your own family. We've taken this so seriously recently. This burden has gotten so strong on my heart in the last probably four or five months that each of the pastors here has been given a two week working sabbatical to do nothing but deal with these issues in their home and in their ministries. It's so important. It's so important that this be right that we're actually dedicating time to make sure as we move forward and people continue to come and conflict continues to arise, change continues to grow, more people continue to come in, that good ministry and fruitful ministry and fruitful church is not being used as a cover for bad homes, for bad marriages, for bad kids. You've got to diagnose this of yourself. The one thing, and I never knew this before this week, some of you may know this, the one thing Billy Graham said he wished he could have done differently. I mean, Good ministry can't cover up a bad home. None of us, as fruitful as we are, were as busy and fruitful as Billy Graham. Can we set that standard? Billy Graham said that looking back on his entire ministry, the one thing he wished he had done differently, it wasn't connection to a local church, it wasn't better follow-up and discipleship methods, it was he wished he had spent more time with his wife and kids. If I could do it all over again, the one thing I would do is I would have spent more time with my wife and kids. Good ministry cannot cover up a bad home, good ministry can actually disqualify you from leading the church. If that becomes the case in your life, your fruitfulness in ministry can actually disqualify you if it's being used to cover up a bad marriage. Got that? Are you above reproach in your home, your wife, with your kids? Now, Titus, we're going to run fast because these are pretty self-evident. Titus is going to give us a list of negatives. Paul mixes them all into his letter to Timothy with the good, but with Titus, he just busts out negatives. This is who he's got to be. He's got to be above reproach. And look at how he loves his wife and loves his kids. And let me say this, you're not married, lots of guys in here that aren't married, that doesn't disqualify you from leading in God's church, and you can actually practice and cultivate the realities of being a good pastor dad before you ever get married and have kids. You can be diligent about learning and growing and increasing in your treasuring of the gospel and enjoying the grace of God and learning all that God has for you and how to know him and how to grow in that leadership capacity so that when you have a wife and you have kids, you can answer their questions, you can lead them, you can have a direction, you can be a good pastor dad. It doesn't disqualify you by not being married, but you can actually cultivate these traits in your life before you get married. The last time to do it is when you get married. You can still do it. But you're playing catch-up. So if you're not married, we're still talking to you. Now listen to the way he says. Paul says to Titus here negatives. No, this is what he can't be. He can't be arrogant. Well, that cuts out lots of us. Quick-tempered or a drunkard. Talking about their general indulgence. He can't be a man whose soul is given to looking to something for else for comfort other than Jesus. He can't be a guy that gets depressed, gets frustrated, gets angry, gets disappointed, and he drinks too much or eats too much or shops too much. Or, and men do that, don't. Men do that. Men get depressed and they go buy things. It might not be clothes, it's probably boats. Things like that, but they do it. Can't be a guy who's given to some other form of crutch for comfort or, or control. He can't be violent or, or greedy for gain. I've got a great story there, but I, I won't tell you for that for now. But he can't be a guy who looks at the church as his own you know, multi-level marketing pool. He can't be a guy that's looking at how he can promote his business and his resource with the congregation and the church directory. He can't be a guy that does this for any kind of greed or gain. Um, and what Paul's saying to Titus, and let me just try to wrap all these negatives up, what he's saying to Titus and, and to Timothy is this. Take, take a good look at this guy. Look at his life, look at his home, look at his heart. What I want you to see is how he handles the, the general idols and temptations of this life. How does he handle power? How does he handle greed? How does he handle gain? How does he handle money? How does he handle sexuality? How does he handle temptation? All of the things that capture so many of our hearts, all the things that are so ready and accessible in our culture, how does he handle the idols of this life? How does he do it? How is he conquering and dismantling these idols in his heart and in his, and in his soul? How does he handle power? Is he arrogant, is he manipulative? Does he always have to be right? Is everything an argument about him? If so, he, he might not be ready, he's gotta do some work on that. He's gotta handle that. How does he handle influence? Does he influence people by serving them, caring for them the way that the Bible depicts that in particular in that parable, or is he manipulative? Does he try to serve people by manipulating them to get what he wants out of them? Does he use force? how does he handle money? All those things. The idols of this life, the idols of our heart, the idols of this culture. Take a look under the hood and see how he's doing. How does he handle those things? See, it's important to know that. It's important to look at that. It's important to see where he is with that. Because if he's a guy who's increasingly enjoying God's grace to greater and greater measure, there's going to be an increasing measure of of destruction of those things. There's going to be an increasing measure of fruitfulness in overcoming those idols. There's gonna be an increasing measure of, of fruitfulness and no longer dealing with these things in the same old ways, but in treasuring the riches of the gospel and growing in the grace of God to respond to those idols in a completely different way. So that when you come to him with a struggle in these things, he's not trying to give you answers or comfort or insight out of something other than his own experience, which will only then compound the hypocrisy with which he's leading and teaching and feeding. Take a look under the hood. How's he doing with the idols? How's he battle these things? These things should not be characteristic of his life. Instead, he should be hospitable. His life should be open, his house should be open, not to just friends, but to strangers. This was dealing most particularly with the the leaders of the church back in the day when people would come into those villages and into those homes. Oftentimes, it was the priests that would open up their homes for strangers who were passing through town to stay in their homes. Hospitality is not fellowship. It's not just getting together with your buddies. Hospitality is opening your home to people you don't know, strangers, those who aren't a part of the covenant community. Is his life open? Is his house open? Is he forthcoming with who he is? Is he hospitable? He's gotta be a lover of good, self-controlled. His mind's gotta be under control. He can't be distracted. He can't be a guy that gets in a pickle and gets in a conflict and ditches off of something else because his mind's all over the place. He's gotta be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, and and 1 Timothy, Paul adds these. He's gotta be sober-minded, He's got to have a right understanding of himself. He's got to be a guy that knows his strengths, knows his weaknesses, knows his temptations, knows his struggles, knows where he's weak, knows where he's strong, knows how the gospel's handling those things because conflict in the church is not the place to figure that out. Leading God's people, making decisions for God's people, protecting God's people, serving God's people, instructing God's people is not the place to figure out where you're weak and where you're strong, where you're tempted and where you're not. He's got to be sober minded. He's got to have an accurate self assessment. He's got to be respectable, gentle, not a recent convert. That's not biology, that's spiritual chronology. You can be young and spiritually mature. He's not talking about just age here. He's got to be well thought of by outsiders. People have to respect you. You've got to have a good reputation. If we did what we talked about last week and threw an ad up in the paper, the expectation is we wouldn't get a flood of emails and calls as to why you shouldn't lead God's people the period of time that you're being appointed you've got to have a good reputation to be thought of well people can look at you and go I don't agree with him I, I'm not really into what he's into but you know what he's a good guy he's a good guy I like to have him around he's honest and he's consistent with what he believes you got to have a good reputation and then Paul's saying this he's saying, "Look, Titus, Timothy appoint guys to lead my church that enjoy my grace and will lead others to do the same will protect them from distraction and destruction. Appoint guys who love my word, love their families, and whose lives increasingly display the power of my grace to turn sinners into servants. And as for deacons, we'll wrap it up here. Did you remember, we read it a while ago, how similar that list was? Just how similar the traits and the characteristics of deacons were to elders or to overseers in the church? There's two main exceptions, and I'll say them here. A deacon does not have to be able to teach. He has to hold firm to the trustworthy word. He's got to be a leader who's enjoying grace in an increasing measure. He does not have to be able to teach it to other people the same way an elder has to be able to teach it to other people. He might. He might be a teacher. He he might be able to do that. He doesn't have to be able to do that. And a deacon can be a woman. Two main distinctions. The only role, office, place in the life of the church that is directly put aside for men to operate in is an elder. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul is talking to Timothy about deacons, and he says, and deacons and their wives likewise, that word wives is a word that can actually as easily and as accurately be translated women. And the debate throughout centuries, and the church doesn't split over this, the church shouldn't argue about this, the church operate differently on this, and it's okay. It's whether or not it's wives of current deacons or women. We land in the place where the Bible is translating that women. Women can lead God's people in serving God's people. Women can lead as deacons in the life of this church. Women can occupy those places and do occupy those functions already in the life of this church. And Paul has a couple particular things to say when a woman becomes a deacon. He talks the same things to men about managing their house and leading their house and loving their wives and and loving their kids. And he says this, for those women who are gonna be deacons, just throw this out to her. She can't be a malicious talker or a slanderer. And I'll say this, I want to broaden that to men and women. Men are just as prone to malicious talk, gossip, and slander as women are. And here's why it's so important for a leader in God's church to not be a malicious talker and a slanderer. You cannot be characterized by being a gossip. You will know things that other people do not know. You will serve people and be intimately involved in the lives of people who are going through very, very devastating things. If you cannot be trusted to keep your mouth shut and not use the things that you know and the information that you have for your own gain or for your own purpose or for whatever need you feel with which you need to share it, there's no place for you in leading God's church at this point, male or female. It doesn't matter to me on that one. You cannot be someone who's characterized by malicious talk or gossip or slander. It just is not safe. It's not right. It's not healthy. It doesn't promote a church that deeply enjoys and lives out the grace of God. So let me say this as we I'm gonna pray because I've taken up too much time. These lists, they're traits, they're diagnostics, they're comprehensive. They're not comprehensive. They're just a picture of what we're after I want you to miss this. For some of you, it just, some of you just want to throw your hands up and just say, oh well, I'm glad there are other people who will be like that. That's not for me. The actual role of functioning as an elder or deacon might not be for you. But every single one of those things said about those people is to be true of you in your life because of the gospel. If you're not an elder or a deacon, it doesn't mean you get to go out and get hammered every night. It doesn't mean you get to be greedy. It doesn't mean you can do everything you do for your own personal gain you be violent and quick-tempered. All of those things, even able to teach, is actually said of all of God's people. We're all to be the amb- ambassadors of the ministry and the word of reconciliation. We're all to be quick to encourage one another in the good news of the gospel. We're all to be quick to take the gospel and be able to apply it to the realities of life that your brother and sister face. We're all actually called by the gospel to be able to teach. Elders are particularly called by God to do that in a particular way for God's people, but you all have got to do it. And here's, before you throw your hands up and just feel absolutely disqualified and dejected, I want you to see that those two lists, as similar as they are, actually match up to another list. There's one other list in the Bible I want to close with that I want you to see that these traits particularly match up to. The reason that elders and deacons and leaders in God's church have to be men and women who are increasingly enjoying God's grace is because that is the only thing The only center, the only foundation for your maturation to actually be healthy and for the real source of power to become the person that God is calling you to be, to actually be found. It's only found in the grace of God and the good news of the gospel of God. It's the only thing that can transform you from a sinner into a servant in God's church. Paul said this in Galatians 5. This is where I'm going to close. I want you to hear this. When the Holy Spirit controls your life, he will produce this kind of fruit in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here there is no conflict with the law. Those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. If we are now living by the Holy Spirit, let us follow the Holy Spirit's leading in every part of our life. The list of traits in 1 Timothy and in Titus are just public expressions of the internal fruit of the Spirit, that's all they are. Where does the capacity for you to grow in the characteristic and traits that he lists in 1 Timothy and Titus come from, it comes from you growing in your capacity to enjoy the grace of God. It comes from your growth in the gospel as the Holy Spirit produces this fruit internally in your life. What is love if it doesn't lead you to care for your own family, lead your own family, love and serve your own family, and display that in the love and serve you have for God's church? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, a one-woman guide, firm with the gospel, gentleness and self-control, those are all traits cultivated in us as we continue to be people who increasingly enjoy the grace of God. As that happens, God particularly calls out some people to display those gifts publicly in the way they serve and lead his church. Leaders have got to be people, men and women in God's church, who enjoy his grace. You want to lead God's people? Increasingly enjoy his grace. You want to care for God's people and serve God's people? Increasingly enjoy God's grace. If some of those qualities seem absent in your life, increasingly learn to enjoy God's grace. If we want to be a church that reflects the character of God as he has displayed it in his word, we've got to be a people who increasingly enjoy God's grace. It's just that simple. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you have done for us through your son what we cannot do for ourselves and you have given us the only power and capacity that we have to be conformed into the people you're calling us to be. Lord, help us to be a people who are desperate to learn how to deeply enjoy your good news, your grace, your gospel. Lord, where we have sought something other kind of change, where we have tried to find some other kind of source of of power or comfort, Lord, expose that in our hearts. Draw us to repentance, Lord, and draw us back to your grace. Lord, may this church be a church that is learning to increasingly enjoy your grace, and may you, Lord, provide men and women who will lead us in that. Will you provide men who will serve as elders and pastors, who will lead and protect and serve and feed and sacrifice all that they are to see your people become all that you are calling us to be. And may you provide men and women who will lead us in meeting needs and serving Lead us in displaying the gospel lived out in our community and in our life. Lord, will you, will you make it clear to us who are, who are leading your church, who the men and women are that you're cultivating here. May we be fervent to pray, pray for a number of people, a number of leaders that you would bring, that you would cultivate. Lord, to maybe all desire to see the traits of these leaders cultivated in our hearts and souls by your grace and for your glory. Amen.